John chapter 4, verses 43 to 54. Jesus heals an official's son. After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honour in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realised that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Uh, for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, great to um, come down and share time with you this morning. Uh, great to see you all here on a Sunday morning, especially Father's Day when uh, lots of people might think there are other things that are good to rush off and do, but great to gather together in the name of the Lord to start the day. It's a great passage of scripture we just read uh, and I uh, hope you've got your Bibles there open in front of you because we're going to be looking at that uh, quite closely in a few moments. But uh, as we start, I just reckon it's, it's really interesting to, to think about this, isn't it? It's really interesting to think about how often someone would love someone else purely because of who they are. Purely because of who they are. Not because of what they can do, not because of what you might get from them, but purely because of who they are. Uh, it's actually remarkably difficult to picture that kind of love because we don't see it that much. Um, I remember talking with a friend uh, quite a while ago now about uh, an elderly woman that we had in church and just thinking she was fantastic but trying to uh, have this uh, thought about what is it that's so great about her that we really love? Oh, she prays. She's a great prayer. Oh, yes, good. She was elderly. She was quite incapacitated but we ended up realising... We value her because of her prayers. That is what she does. Take another example from the other extreme. What about even someone who is someone who you love dearly in a romantic way? Someone whom you are uh, your lover, the object of your affection. We often think, I just give my heart to that person. I love them for who they are. But the reality is, 
we actually love them with a great hope that they will love us back. That they will do something for us. They will satisfy our need for intimacy and affection. But what does it look like if that lovely elderly old woman is unable to pray anymore? When she can't do anything? Do we still love her just for who she is? What about when the object of my affection doesn't return my affection? Well, that hurts, and that's hard, and that's a love that we don't really enjoy. Loving someone just for who they are. It really is what the passage of Scripture we're looking at today brings right to the front when we think about Jesus. Do we love Jesus just for who he is? Or... Do we love him because of what he can do and what we think we might be able to get from him? It's a good question and it's a question actually that Jesus is very interested in us thinking about. Uh, Turn back if you will with me uh, to the scriptures. It's uh, page 1067 in uh, the Bibles that you have here and it's John chapter 4, the end of that chapter. Now we have Jesus here in verse 43 Uh, heading back up to Galilee. Uh, Now, uh, if you know your kind of Middle Eastern geography, uh, it goes like this. Uh, Down the bottom of the land of Israel is the area we call Judah. Uh, And down in Judah is Jerusalem and Bethlehem and those kinds of places. In the middle, there's Samaria. And you get to the top and there's Galilee. And Galilee is where Nazareth is and where Jesus uh, was raised. Uh, And Jesus has been down in Jerusalem Uh, So in chapter 2, he was down in Jerusalem uh, for the Passover festival and those things happened like clearing out the temple. You might know that story. Uh, But then as we head into chapter 4, the first part, he's been in Samaria. And uh, that's been a fantastic encounter he had in Samaria. Uh, He met this Samaritan woman who was not a Jew, so therefore not one of the, the people of God historically. But her response to Jesus was remarkable. And then the whole town that they were at also had a similar response to Jesus. It's kind of been a standout moment in the early chapters of John's Gospel. How well these people, who were not God's people really, how well they responded to Jesus. And now Jesus, after a couple of days, continues heading north up into Galilee. And as he does that, Jesus kind of has said something about what his reception will be like up here. And John has just recorded it for us in verse 44. Jesus had pointed out that a prophet has no honour in his home country. So Jesus is saying, uh, look, we've been here in Samaria where it's not my country, not Jewish heartland, but I was remarkably well received. But as we head up north now to Galilee, back to my home country, I expect this is a place I will not be honoured. It'll be a great contrast. And Jesus has quite low expectations for the reception he'll receive. Now that's quite a good proverb that Jesus has quoted, isn't it? Uh, That a prophet has no honour in his own country. Um, That is, uh, where you grow up, uh, even if you go away and become, uh, you know, really fabulous and uh, well-achieved person, uh, the people who you grew up around knew what kind of a kid you were. Uh, So, you know... I, I take my own uh, example, uh, not that I've become you know, sort of world-famous rock star or anything like that, but I know the town I grew up in, oh my goodness. The idiot I was in high school, the mistakes I made, the kind of 
just messed up, peculiar, rotten little brat. I think if I went back there, people would go, oh, it's this guy. You get that, right? Now, that obviously wasn't Jesus. He wasn't a rotten little brat. He wasn't any of those things. But I suspect Jesus was actually just ordinary. He was a carpenter's son. He worked with Joseph. So Jesus returning with an entourage and uh, with people interested, people think, what? This guy's the carpenter's son. As if we're going to give him any honour. He doesn't deserve it. We know who he is. He's nothing special. And that's what he anticipates when he returns, that he won't be honoured in the way that he ought to be honoured. Well, then we get to verse 45, and actually, the first thing, it seems that Jesus has got it wrong. It seems, hang on, he's just said a prophet's not without honour, except has no honour, sorry, in his, except in his own country. But then verse 45, we see he arrives in Galilee, up north, and they welcome him. Oh, so actually, there's people here who are kind of excited to see Jesus. They're really keen that he's arrived. So you think, oh, well, hang on, there's something that doesn't quite gel here. Uh, verse 44, Jesus says, a prophet has no honour in his hometown, uh, in his own country, rather. Verse 45, he arrives in Galilee, they welcome him. Oh, so has Jesus made a mistake? What's going on here? Well, it's as you read the next uh, verse or two that it starts to make sense the distinction that Jesus is drawing. When you finish verse 45, we see that they had seen, that is the Galileans, had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Ah, so some of the inhabitants of Galilee have also been down in Jerusalem during the Passover when Jesus is there, and they've kind of beaten him back because he had his stopover in Samaria on the way. And they might have been really impressed with what they saw Jesus do down in Jerusalem during the Passover festival. And again, if you remember uh, John chapter 2, you might remember that story of him cleansing the temple, um, turning over the tables. Uh, Maybe they thought, this guy is actually turning out to be a bit of a political revolutionary. We like his stripe. He's he's kicking those guys who've always kind of told us how we have to worship God and and, and now he's he's kind of really uh, speaking for us small people out in the the rural districts. Yeah, we like the sound of this guy. It's interesting, by the way, just as a sort of side note, Christians often use that story out of John chapter 2 as a justification for our anger. You know, Christians are angry and someone says, oh, you shouldn't be angry, that's not very godly. And they say, oh no, but Jesus got angry. He turned over the table, so actually it's a very Christian thing to do. Well, just be careful if you're someone who's likely to do that. Uh, Jesus has a righteous anger, an anger that burns from a purity in heart. Uh, My fear is I don't know once when my anger has ever been righteous. It's usually been an anger driven by indignation or pride or something silly like that. Anyway, so the people up in Galilee have seen, some of them, what Jesus did. And uh, if you remember John 2, and if you don't, you can just flip back a page. Uh, Right at the end uh, of that little incident of Jesus cleansing the temple, you get to verse 23 of John chapter 2, and it says, While he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing. That is, not only was Jesus tipping over the tables out the front of the temple, But he was also performing signs, which is the word that John really uses for miracles in his gospel. What was he doing? We don't really know. It doesn't tell us. He might have been feeding the thousands. He might have been healing people. 
Whatever he was doing, though, uh, it was something spectacular. So Jesus returns to Galilee as anything but a normal Galilean guy, son of a carpenter. Something has changed in his life, and a number of people have seen it, and they've been excited by it. And so when he comes back to Galilee, they welcome him. Uh, Interestingly as well, in verse 46, you notice that this incident that's about to take place happens in Cana in Galilee, where Jesus had turned water into wine. So in this particular city as well, this particular town, they've actually seen Jesus' first miracle, turning of the water into wine. So they again have some evidence of the kind of stuff this guy can do, and that again might be part of the reason that they're excited about welcoming him. Although, think back to that story as well. Or you can flick back to, if you like, uh, back in chapter 2, verse 11, just a page back. After Jesus had turned the water into wine, what was the result of it? What was the result? Well, chapter 2, verse 11, uh, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Now, the interesting thing there is, it says his disciples believed in him. It doesn't say anything about what the rest of the townspeople of Cana believed, the people at the wedding, the people who were celebrating. They got lots of wine and had a great party and think, wow, this guy did that. But it never says they actually believed in him after he had revealed his glory the way the disciples did. So I think this is what's going on here. Jesus has said a prophet has no honour in his home country. He arrives and they welcome him. But the question we're meant to ask is, why are they welcoming him? What sort of honour are they going to show him? They're not ignoring him. They're not pretending he isn't there. But why are they interested in him? Are they excited about Jesus because he's a political activist and they're all kind of itching for some sort of revolution and this could be their man? Are they excited because they know he's a miracle worker? And think, well, maybe he'll make some more water into wine for us or do something else like that. Or are they excited that he comes as a representative of God the Father deserving the honour of a prophet, if not more? How do they receive him? How do they receive him? Well, a situation unfolds that will, of course, reveal something of the answer to us. As we keep reading in verse 46, we find there's a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. Capernaum's a town up in Galilee, not too far away, but still a little distance off from uh, Cana. And uh, this servant, this uh, royal official rather, is probably a servant of uh, Herod Antipas. Uh, Not 100% sure of that, but it seems likely. Uh, And he has a son who is sick in Capernaum. Uh, Gravely ill, it turns out in verse 47, uh, he's close to death. Now, the clear interest that this royal official has in seeing Jesus is what? This guy's a miracle worker. This guy might be able to heal my son. That is, he has not come to Jesus to honour him as a prophet of God, let alone the son of God. He's come to Jesus for what he can get out of him. I want you to heal my son. I care about my son, and if you can fix him, then I'm prepared to come to you. Now, uh, on the one hand, this makes an enormous amount of sense, and I don't want to be too harsh on this guy, really. Uh, I have two kids and a third on the way. 
And I'm a, I'm a warrior by disposition. My grandmother was a warrior, my mother's a warrior, uh, and I'm a warrior too. When my kids are sick, I am really not a very helpful sort of person. My wife, she's in control. You know, look, it's just a runny nose, there's tissues over there, I'm sure he'll be all right. Uh, I get all edgy. Oh my goodness, what's happening? They're unwell. Uh, we need to quick take them to the hospital, call an ambulance. Um, I'm exaggerating, but you get the point. Uh, but sincerely, I can't cope very well if my kids are ever seriously sick. And we've had a couple of hospital runs, like lots of parents had, have had, with some serious things that have concerned us. Uh, and we've had, you know, various needs for X-rays and so on. Um, it's not nice. And I suspect, if one of my kids was sick at the point of death, and Jesus turned up, my first reaction, like. Many fathers, just thinking about fathers on Father's Day, would be, Jesus, please, 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 can you heal my kid? That's just the dominating thing in my mind. Please, can you heal my kid? So this guy's a good dad. And I also don't want to be too harsh on him because he has at least a pinch of faith, doesn't he? He goes to Jesus. He knows that, if nothing else, Jesus is someone who's got some kind of power and some kind of compassion. It's a, it's a good start to come to Jesus for those reasons. But much as we understand him, and personally I quite resonate with the guy, when you read verse 48, you feel that Jesus is actually somewhat disappointed. It's strange, but you know, Jesus feels like, uh, I feel a bit let down that this is the welcome I'm getting. It's kind of like this really proves true that a prophet has no honour in their home country. People have not come to me to honour me as the son of God they've come because of what I can do for them they haven't come because of who I am they've come for what they can get and Jesus says that the type of faith he's looking for the type of response he's looking for is uh, the type of uh, faith belief that can only be stimulated by miracles he says, I want people to respond to me in a certain way and sadly, the only way that's going to happen is if I perform miracles. Verse 48, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you'll never believe. Now, I wonder why this is a problem. You know, Jesus is kind of disappointed that A, the guys come to him just for what he can get and B, that the type of belief Jesus is looking for is the belief that can only be stimulated by miracles. What's the problem? Why doesn't Jesus just say, okay, I'm going to heal the kid. That'll be a great miracle. So you'll get what you want and everyone will see the miracle and believe in me and I'll get what I want. That will kind of make a lot of sense. Let's do that. But Jesus doesn't seem to have that approach to the whole situation. Why not? Why not just say, I'm a miracle worker. I'll work the miracles you'll believe. Everyone will be happy. I think there's a couple of reasons why Jesus doesn't have that attitude. He doesn't want people to believe in him based on the signs and miracles he does. That's not really his ideal. And firstly, I think the reason is because there will not always be signs and miracles to bring people to belief. That won't be the experience of every person. And Jesus wants people to believe even when they don't have those signs and miracles to believe in. Uh, you might know near the end of John's Gospel, there's this encounter with Thomas, who, you know, sadly for the rest of history, is known as Doubting Thomas. 
Uh, after Jesus had been raised from the dead, Thomas said, I won't believe it unless I can see the scars and put my finger in the hole. You, you probably know that story. Jesus appears and presents himself and Thomas is able to touch. At that point, Thomas realises he doesn't need to touch anything. He just needs to see. That's good enough for Thomas. But Jesus says, even that, even that is more than you should need, Thomas. You should have believed just from hearing it. Now, granted, you don't need to touch it, but you still needed to see it. And at the end of that incident, Jesus says, uh, verse 29 of chapter 20 in John's Gospel, Jesus told Thomas, because you've seen me, Thomas, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See, it's the same thing. Jesus really would prefer that people believed in him apart from any miracles. And I think that's largely because for lots of people they'll never get a miracle. But the call will still be to believe. You see, what Jesus wants is a faith of the ear, not a faith of the eye. Jesus wants a faith where people hear the truth about him and not have to see something in order to trust who he is. God's people are people of the word, not people of the impressive display. That's who they are. Uh, people sometimes ask the question, if Jesus was around today, would he, instead of having used words and found people to write those words down in a book, would he record his message on YouTube? You know, why not? Uh, that is, surely you use the most current technology you've got available to you. Um, back in Jesus' time, the most current technology was you know, a scribe who could put something on paper and that was all you had. But now, surely Jesus used something better. Uh, well, it's a moot point, isn't it? Because, you know, that's not how it happened, so... You can talk about it, but it doesn't make much difference. But my gut is no. Jesus would not have recorded YouTube clips for posterity. Uh, why? Because I think words often are much more powerful than images. Now, we often don't think that way. We often think a picture's worth a thousand words, right? But as my mentor reminds me, yes, people say a picture's worth a thousand words, but there's no picture that captures that truth. Only words can explain that. Words are far more powerful in many ways. The signs and pictures and things seen have an inherent degree of subjectivity in them. They require interpretation. And words require interpretation too, but actually they are still the human race's best medium for truth. Truth is best conveyed in words. And Now, if you get into all the technical side of it, you talk to the philosophers and universities and so on, and more and more and more, philosophy is being married in academic world to linguistics because people realise truth is captured in words and the way we use words reflects the truth. So I don't think Jesus would actually use YouTube clips. Again, we'll never know. But uh, I think he wants us to be people who have a faith of the ear, not a faith of the eye. Uh, the second reason, though, that I think Jesus is wanting people to believe the words and not just the miracles is because people don't always believe what they see anyway. <laughs> Uh, there's that great story you might know from Luke's Gospel, chapter 16, where Jesus is telling the parable about the, the rich man and Lazarus. 
and uh, talks about this story where they, they both die and Lazarus goes to be with Abraham in heaven and the, the rich man who didn't care for the poor in his life, he ends up suffering down in hell. And uh, he realises the error of his ways and he calls out asking if someone can be sent back to his living brothers so that they don't make the same mistake. But the response he gets is, no, that's not going to happen. They've got Moses. They've got the prophets. They've got the writing. They've got the words. And if they don't believe them, they wouldn't even believe if someone came back from the dead, frankly. And it's an ominous statement because there are plenty of people who... Uh, can get all the evidence in the world for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and still don't believe it. But they have everything they need in the words of the scriptures if they'll give them time. So I think that's why Jesus feels disappointed in verse 48. Now, verse 49, of course, the royal official is just not in the place to have this kind of reflective conversation, uh, and the story moves on much more quickly than we have. Uh, He's frankly desperate for the health of his child, uh, as I probably would be too. He says, just, sir, uh, interesting comment you're making there, Jesus, profound, all that sort of stuff, great, but look, just come quickly, my child's about to die. Well, in verse 50 then, Jesus uh, does an amazing thing. He shows uh, a great deal of power and a great deal of compassion despite his disappointment. And he dismisses the man almost, it, it reads almost offhandedly with just his simple reassurance Go, go, uh, your son will live. Simple as that. Incredible sort of statement that's, that's sort of the most powerful thing that could be said to this man at this stage but just sounds like a a, a casual off the cuff few words again to the man's great credit he takes Jesus at his word and leaves this is not an insignificant thing the man says I'm going to believe what I've heard not what I've seen and I'll go and so he does and on the way home verse 51 he gets the message the boy is okay the boy's okay. Of course, you can only imagine this is a huge relief. This is overwhelmingly what he wanted to hear. And it's a great reminder to him and to us of God's power and love in action. And as we hear that the boy's okay after what Jesus said, we might think, oh, has Jesus just kind of capitulated? Has he just become a, a crowd pleaser? Has he said, you guys demand signs and you won't believe, so I guess I'll just have to give you signs. Well, yes and no, actually. Uh, There's a level at which, yes, he has. He's given a miraculous sign. He's healed the son, and that has uh, led the man to experience the power of Jesus that way. But there's more going on, isn't there? Uh, That is, this wasn't just a miracle. This was a sign that was meant to point the man, and his household, actually, towards the truth about Jesus. And it's very interesting, no one saw it happen. No one saw the sign. No one saw, like in other accounts when Jesus heals people, of the person suddenly responding there and then. We have no evidence. The man didn't see it. He was in Cana. Uh, And the people of Cana didn't see it. And they maybe only heard about it a long time later, after the man had got back to Capernaum and news had filtered across. There's no evidence even anyone at the man's home in Capernaum saw it. Maybe the kid just came downstairs and said, hey, I'm feeling good, what's for lunch? 
we don't, no one saw anything. All we have here is the report of words reported from one person to another. Spoken, received. Even the man himself, verse 52, he, he, he just wants to check it out before he believes it, doesn't he? When he, uh, you know, he hears the news, his boy's living, that's great. And he goes, well, just hang on a sec. I know Jesus said he'd live, but maybe it was just a big coincidence. So he needs to go, verse 52, and inquire as to the time when it got better. And they tell him, you know, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Uh, And then in verse uh, 53, he realises, well, that's the exact time that Jesus said your son will live. That is, it takes that extra just round of confirmation and double checking to make sure this isn't just a giant coincidence. Oh, well, Jesus might have said something, but actually, he just happened to get better. No, at that point, he realises this is no coincidence. And when the time's confirmed, the man and his whole house believe. Now, it's very interesting the way John has recorded this for us, isn't it? Notice what John doesn't tell us. Verse 53, the father realised that this was the exact time which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And so he and his whole household rejoiced and gave thanks. They were so happy that the kid was better. Well, presumably they did. Presumably they did celebrate and were so relieved and thankful. But their thanks for the healing of the son is not on focus. Their joy at his health is not what John records for us. No, something else takes John's attention And it's the issue that Jesus cared about, primarily, which is the state of this man's belief. And so, when he learns the exact time, he and his whole household didn't rejoice, didn't give thanks, didn't celebrate. They believed. They believed. This is what Jesus has been interested in for this entire story. Belief. And now... At the conclusion of the story, yes, a boy's healed, praise the Lord. But even more significantly, a household has come to believe. A household has come to believe. Now, I presume the substance of their belief, what they believed, was not just that Jesus could do something for them or that that they could get something out of Jesus. I presume the language here of they believed is loaded And means a lot more. And in fact, John tells us again at the end of his gospel what he means when he uses that language of belief. Uh, Pretty much exactly the same place we were before, talking about Thomas. Straight after that little incident with Thomas where Jesus says, "Uh, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. John then puts this little kind of footnote, conclusion to his whole gospel, where he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So you presume that what's happened here is this royal official and his whole family have not just come to believe that Jesus can do powerful stuff, not just come to believe that Jesus is a a miracle-working healer, but they have come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, God's King, and God's son. That's a very significant belief. That's more significant in believing that he's a great healer. More significant in believing that his words have power. That's believing something fundamental about his identity and about God's work in the world. 
they came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. Why is that so important? What does it matter whether you believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, or whether you believe he's a miracle worker, or whether you believe he's some carpenter's son? What does it matter? Well, John's Gospel at the end tells us why it matters. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Jesus wants people to believe who he is because it's through believing that you have life in his name. And again, this this whole incident is just a little snapshot of this, isn't it? This guy has some belief in who Jesus is and it's actually belief in Jesus that's led to the life of the son that's repeated isn't it a couple of times your son will live you have believed so you get life now this is the consistent message of the book of John this is a consistent message of the New Testament and the consistent message of the Bible if you do not have God you do not have life you do not have life Uh, In fact, that really is, um, again, just the whole thrust of what John is saying again and again and again. Earlier up on the screen, we had that famous, famous Bible verse, perhaps the most famous of all, John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Same message yet again. But that life that you only have if you know God is more than physical life now more than temporal life more than the 70 80 90 years of life that many of us will have that will end still with us going to our graves you see jesus does care for the sick and he does care for our material lives he does care for the here and now absolutely god made this world and he made us and he cares for every part of it but actually the life that's being spoken about is eternal life life ever after Life so that when you die, you're not with the rich man who rejected God, but you're with the likes of Lazarus who trusted in him and spend eternity with him. And so the reason that Jesus gave his signs, the reason that Jesus did miracles in John's Gospel, even though they do betray something of a shallow faith, even though they do rely on a belief, a faith of the eye rather than a faith of the ear even though it's not as good as believing just because of the words ultimately Jesus still performed these miracles did these signs so that belief would follow because Jesus loves his people loves us and cares for us so much that he wants us to have that eternal life no matter what in John chapter 10 verses 37 and 38 Jesus explains, again, a similar thing about why he does these signs, why these miracles. Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that I am in the Father and the Father, that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. That is, believe on the Son of God. And if you don't believe that, just then believe the miracles and let them point you to who I am. The passage ends in verse 54. This is the second sign 
that Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. There's more signs throughout John's gospel and this language of sign again is that John's sort of way of talking about something that is uh, both a miracle but a miracle that's meant to point us to something and particularly to point us to who Jesus is. And this is a powerful story, isn't it? Because it just teaches us again that we can have that faith of the ear. We can have that faith of the ear. This man and his household didn't see, but they believed. And we are also, all of us, in the same situation. Few of us, I think, will see a miracle. Few of us will see a miracle unambiguous enough to point to the fact that Jesus is Lord. It turns out uh, a week ago our chickens got taken by the fox. Ah, you, you dread this day and you've got to explain it to the kids. Um, anyway, after having dealt with that, we went uh, yesterday and we bought some new chooks. Oh, let the chooks out. We went to lock them up last night and realised one had escaped. Uh, oh dear, this was just a kind of error after error compounding but there was a hole under the gate and one escaped so my daughter and I went out after dark last night driving around looking for a chicken what are your chances of finding a chicken at night that has escaped and may well have escaped five or six hours earlier I will be honest with you and I've, I've been honest with my daughter after the fact I don't think we were going to find the chicken but we drove around the streets with a torch we looked for the chicken I didn't think we were going to find the chicken but because of the distress of losing the chickens earlier uh, last week and because this was a big thing in the family, I just prayed, Lord, could we please find a chicken? <laughs> That'd be great. It's a small thing in the scheme of things, but could we please find a chicken? Anyway, we drove around 15 minutes. We didn't find the chicken. Went back home. Drove into the driveway. It was sitting in the driveway. Now, there's a level at which part of me is happy to say, that was a little miracle. That was a little miracle. But it's so easy to come up with another explanation. You know, that's oh, just a coincidence. Maybe the chicken didn't actually escape. Maybe it just went and hid behind the shed or something. This is a kind of thing where we prayed something very specific, very direct, and I think God answered the prayer. But if you wanted to, you could not believe it. That's why we don't want to bank on miracles, answers to prayer, things like that as the only reason for believing in God. We have to believe in the testimony we hear about him, not just what he does for us or what we get out of him. Because sometimes we won't, and when we do, we might not necessarily find it completely compelling anyway. And in this story, we see that happening. And the call of this story is not to believe that Jesus is a miracle worker. The call of the story is not ultimately to believe that Jesus is the one who can heal you of all your physical problems. He can do those things, but that's not what the story is calling us to believe in. The story is calling us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And to come to him, not just because of what he can do for us or what we can get for him, but to come to him simply for who he is. Simply because as the Son of God, he deserves all the honour that we can give him. Now, of course, many of us already know 
that there's more to the story of Jesus than this. Because even though the call is for our hearts to be set on honouring and loving Jesus simply for who he is, not for what he does, the truth is he has done more for us than anyone ever has and anyone ever will. He gave his life, didn't he? He died for us on a Roman cross. He paid our penalty, the penalty we owed to God because of our offences. And he did it freely because he loves us. And he wants us on that last day to face him clean. But the thing is, the cross, like so many of the things that we see in our lives, so many of the works of God that we're aware of, the cross didn't look miraculous. The cross didn't look like an impressive sign. It's almost anticlimactic. That is, it looks like this great guy Jesus has now been killed and therefore was a giant failure. You see, it's very important for us to trust what we hear about the cross, not just what we see, a dead man. What we hear about the cross from the scriptures is that the cross was the place where our punishment was taken away. The cross was the place where the accounts were reckoned with God. The cross is the place that secured for us eternal life, life in his name. And it also secured for us all of the other things we hope for. If we have a kind of revolutionary streak and we want to see governments set right, well, ultimately, in the new and eternal life, there'll be great government. There'll be the government of God. If we want Jesus to make more wine for our parties, well, actually, the cross allows us to enter into that great banquet of God where there'll be well-aged wines for us to enjoy in his presence. If we want for God to heal those of us who are sick and unwell and at the point of death, well, the cross takes us to that place where there's no more weeping and mourning and death and dying have all passed away. The cross really secures for us all the things we would want But the way we come to it is not saying, Jesus, what can you give me? But Jesus, you are the Messiah, the Son of God, and we honour you as such. And in doing that, we receive life in his name. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you want us to have life. Uh, Not just life now, which is a great gift, but life eternally. Life that's healed, life that's whole, life that's healthy. And we thank you so much that the Lord Jesus again and again pointed us on the path to life, pointed us to the truth that he is the Messiah. He is your son. He is the one worthy of honour, not for what he does, not for what he gives us, but simply for who he is. And yet we thank you for what he has done and what he has given us. Forgiveness, freedom, life in his name. Father, would we please all approach him, glorifying him and honouring him as he deserves. And we bring out this prayer to you in his name. Amen. Thanks, Tim. 
friends, last week we read Psalm 2, which kind of dovetails so well into this uh, message from John 4. We heard there about the Son who has the nations as his inheritance, the ends of the earth as his possession. And we read there, kiss the son, uh, or he'll be angry, and your way will lead to destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Friends, we're going to, I guess, have a time of response now and reflection as we think through and uh, process and respond to God's word to us today in in John chapter 4. Uh, we're going to do that together through sharing the Lord's Supper. Uh, in a moment, we'll, we'll do that a little bit differently to how we've usually done it the last little while. Uh, we're actually going to hand out both the juice and the bread together uh, at the same time. And when you get them, just hold on to them and we'll eat them. Uh, we'll, we'll drink and eat together. Uh, but in order to prepare our own hearts and perhaps to respond to God's word to us, Uh, about the glory of the Lord Jesus and who he is. Uh, It's right that we um, examine our own hearts, that we uh, confess our own sin before our Lord, uh, knowing, uh, of course, the wonderful forgiveness that we have in the cross. Uh, This prayer of confession really picks up some of these themes. Um, The Lordship of Jesus, the judge of the earth, uh, who is also our great saviour and king. So, um, friends, if you join me in prayer, and and please uh, take the opportunity, uh, if you feel comfortable, to pray this out loud, uh, to join together and pray it out loud, or perhaps just in in your own mind. The words will come up on the screen. But, friends, as we we join together to remember this this great central uh, thing that the, the Lord Jesus has done for us, having been reminded of who he is, Let's respond in this prayer of confession. If you'd like to join together and pray with me together. Almighty God, we believe that you are coming again in power to judge the earth. But we confess that we have not lived as those who daily expect your kingdom. We have spoken harsh words, thought impure thoughts, and lived casual lives. We have ignored your promised judgment by not loving you with our whole hearts or our neighbours as ourselves. Have mercy on us and forgive us for all our offences. In your tender kindness, embrace us with your fatherly love and fill our hearts with the joyful expectation of seeing you soon face to face. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.